You could be forgiven for not knowing that those amazing sounds we've just heard were produced by an acoustic piano, but they were. We've just listened to Marcus Hinterhauser performing John Cage's The Perilous Night for Prepared Piano. Cage was working very closely with a dancer from the Martha Graham Company, and she had asked him to write music for a dance she was presenting, which incorporated a lot of different African elements. And as he says in his book, quite humorously, I think, he says, I tried to write a 12-tone row that sounded African and um, failed. And so he thought next that perhaps I can change the piano. And so he started experimenting with putting things inside of the piano. He put erasers inside the piano, put glass rods on the strings, and um, even cut some of the strings and changed their lengths. As we've heard, it's an unbelievable sound. Welcome to Relevant Tones. My name is Seth Bosted, and today we're listening to pieces written for this great instrument, the piano, especially by modern composers and how they've handled this instrument. In the early 19th century, in Beethoven's time, the piano was in constant flux as um, piano makers vied with one another to go lower and go higher and extend the, the range capabilities of the instrument as the strings got better and the sound got brighter and there was more depth to the instrument. Composers had a field day writing for this. By the middle of the century, the latter half of the century, the piano pretty much was in the form that we find it in today. And so if composers wanted to continue to experiment, they had to get increasingly creative. Before John Cage, the first person that we know of to prepare a piano was Eric Satie. In his piece called The Trap of Medusa, he puts paper inside the strings to create a very harsh and rustling quality to the sound. piano music, it's very difficult to hear how the composer has created the sound, but I think in this satie, it's very clear. You can really hear the paper there rustling. Uh, a wonderful effect, and Alexandra Thoreau played it very well for us. This idea of altering the sound of the piano that satie had started was very intriguing to composers, and especially to a generation of American composers led by Henry Cowell, who in the early 1920s created a whole series of pieces experimenting inside the piano. He would ask the performer to use their fingernails, to use actual nails, <laughs> to use metallic objects and to pluck the strings, to uh, run the objects across the strings, and even to knock and uh, make sounds with the wood inside of the piano. And this opened up an incredible new sound palette. In 1923, he wrote a piece called Aeolian Harp. And in 1925, he wrote what would become his seminal work, The Banshee. Here is Cowell himself performing these two great works.
What a wonderful piece, The Banshee. It sounds so fresh to me even after all of these years, and I find it especially amazing that Cowell takes what essentially could be a gimmick, performing inside the piano, evoking a, a banshee screeching, and turns it into this marvelous musical statement. I teach piano at uh, the School of Access Contemporary Music here in Chicago, and I always play that piece for the kids, usually around Halloween, and um, they love it, and they always immediately want to open up the piano. They want to they want to tinker around inside and try to reproduce some of these sounds that they heard. And uh, for those couple of weeks after we do this piece, I, I have no trouble getting the kids to practice, although they're mostly practicing inside the piano. <laughs> At any rate, in addition to exploring different sounds that the piano can make, composers have also always been interested in pushing the performance capabilities of the people for whom they write. For centuries, composers have pushed the limits of what performers are capable of doing, and one era's unplayable piece is standard repertoire for another era. I think no composer pushed the limits of piano performers more than Conlon Nancaro, so much, in fact, that he gave up on writing for humans, <laughs> and he decided that he could only write for player piano. Living in a suburb of Mexico City, he bought an early player piano and devoted the next 40, 50 years of his compositional career to carving out the little squares in the, in the player piano rolls to make this work. His music is rhythmically precise, it's incredibly complex and often derived from mathematical algorithms, and I, I think it would be incredibly difficult for performers to play this to the exacting degree that he requires. Let's have a listen now to Study Number 40 by Conlon Nancaro.
Well, if you're just tuning into the show, you may be wondering if that was two pianists, three pianists, or who exactly was playing that. And you may also have noticed the tinny sound of the instrument. It doesn't quite sound like a normal piano. We're listening to Study Number 40 by composer Conlon Nancaro for Player Piano, and it was actually recorded live in his studio in Mexico City on his custom-altered 1927 Ampico reproducing piano. Uh, So not only did he get a player piano, but then he custom-altered it to make the sounds that he heard in his mind. With the advent of computers and digital synthesizers, suddenly composers could write music as rhythmically complicated as they wanted and not have to worry about performer limitations whatsoever. And better yet, instead of going through this painstaking process that Nankaro struggled with of carving out the little dots into player piano rolls, they could just simply input it into the computer. An early digital synthesizer called the Synclavier captured the imaginations of many composers, including Frank Zappa, who went so far as to buy one of these very expensive and very large instruments and have it installed in what he called his utility muffin research kitchen, where he would create several works using it. Let's have a listen to a piece he wrote called Jazz from Hell, composed entirely on the synclavier and performed on that instrument.
think it's pretty easy to tell that that piece was composed in the 80s. Um, Jazz from Hell by Frank Zappa. Let's listen to another piece that Zappa composed using the synclavier, but this time performed by live performers. There's a piece that Zappa wrote called Ruth is Sleeping that he dedicated to his percussionist during the late 70s, Ruth Underwood, who apparently would, during rehearsals, when they were working on things that she wasn't playing on, would curl up under the marimba and go to sleep. And I guess he used to try to imagine what she was dreaming about while they were playing their insane music. And uh, so this piece, Ruth is Sleeping, was originally written on the synclavier, um, would be, I think, impossible to perform by one pianist. But here, Ensemble Modern pianists Uli Vigit and Hermann Kretschmar have divided the duties up between two pianists. Let's give a listen to Zappa's Ruth is Sleeping. Thank you. 
The somnambulant musical textures of Frank Zappa's Ruth is Sleeping, performed for us here by pianists Uli Wiegert and Hermann Kretschmar. You're listening to Relevant Tones on WFMT, a show that explores the works of modern composers. Check out our Facebook page or send us an email at info at relevanttones.com. He began to warn the people. He said, after all, it's going to rain after all for 40 days and for 40 nights. And the people didn't believe him. And they began to laugh at him. And they began to mock him. And they began to say, it ain't going to rain. It's 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 going to rain. The year is 1964 on San Francisco's Union Square, and preacher Brother Walter is delivering a sermon about the impending apocalypse. A young American composer, Steve Reich, captures this tirade on tape, and using loops and other mechanical means, creates this amazing piece, It's Gonna Rain. A few years later, Reich decides to apply this same process to acoustic instruments, and in 1967 writes an amazing piece called Piano Phase. In Piano Phase, two pianists are directed to play the same exact short motives over and over and over again in exact sync with each other. As the piece progresses, one pianist will gradually phase or start playing a little bit slower than the other so that you hear these, what what sounds like one idea becomes two ideas slightly out of sync with each other, and then they come back in sync and then out and back in throughout the piece. It's an incredible hypnotic effect. The piece itself is about 20 minutes long. Unfortunately, we don't have time to listen to the whole thing. But let's have a listen now to an excerpt of Piano Phase by Steve Reich. Thank you. 
Oh, sorry. That music had me in a complete hypnotic trance. I hope that uh, anybody who was driving while listening to that uh, did not enter the same trance that I just did. That was Piano Phase by Steve Reich. Reich would go on to write a lot of other pieces like this, and um, in 74, a term was coined, minimal music, and it came to be known as minimalism. And that term was coined by composer Michael Nyman, who later became quite famous writing music for films. His score for the piano is especially well-known. There was another um, well-known minimalist composer named Philip Glass, who is very similar to Reich in many respects. You'll still see a lot of these repetitive elements. The music still has a trance-like and hypnotic quality. There are often very, very even deceptively simple motives that repeat over time. But they don't ever quite get boring. Uh, what Glass does to um, ensure that the music stays interesting is he'll subtly manipulate the musical elements. So he might have a, a lot of patterns of two, and suddenly he'll put in a pattern of three. Or he might have um, a lot of eighth notes in a row, and suddenly there's a dotted eighth with a sixteenth, just to throw it off a little bit. And then he'll use that later as an actual transition, and suddenly you find yourself in a completely new section, and it's done so seamlessly that you don't know how it was even accomplished. We're going to listen to one of his most important piano works, Metamorphosis One.
The Emotional Side of Minimalism, Metamorphosis One by Philip Glass, performed for us on a very interesting disc by pianist Bruce Brubaker called Glass Cage, which is works of Philip Glass and John Cage. One of my favorite things about this piece is how clear it is to see what would become a huge hallmark of Glass's compositional style, which is that uh, this, this manipulation of rhythmic elements that I was talking about a little bit before I played the piece. He'll set up an expectation, and then he'll do something different with it. So, for example, in the melody, he'll go bum, bum, and then he'll go bum, bum, and just be ever so slightly off rhythmically. And if you listen very closely, you'll hear that he's doing the same thing in the accompaniment. The eighth notes become a little bit elongated over time. There. It's right there. I think it's very interesting, and it becomes a very huge part of of how Glass strings his compositions together. This idea in minimalism that you repeat the elements, and then you change them just a little bit, and then you change them just a little bit more, and then suddenly you're in a new section that's completely removed from the beginning. But it happens so subtly that it's very difficult to know how you even got there. We're listening to pieces by modern composers for piano, and we've heard composers inspired by tape loops. We've heard composers who wanted to write music so rhythmically complex that only a player piano or a synthesizer could perform it. We've heard composers play inside the piano. We've heard all all manner of different experimentation with the instrument itself. It was only a matter of time, I think, before composers started thinking, well, what, uh, what about this performer? There is a person up there playing the piano. What can we get him or her to do? And uh, George Crumb came up with an interesting thought about this with a piece he wrote called Macrocosmos. It's a a 24-piece cycle based on the Zodiac in which he instructs the performer to play inside the piano, sure, to tap it and hit it, absolutely. But he also asks the performer to be very theatrical, to yell, to whistle. In one of the pieces, he has the performer whisper in in other languages. And we're going to listen to a piece right now called Night Spell from the Macrocosmos in which he instructs the performer to whistle. And it's this very eerie whistling sound with some light rustling in the piano simultaneously. Thank you. 
We've just heard the eerie whistling of pianist Margaret Lang Tan performing the piece Night Spell by George Crumb. An interesting fact about Crumb is that although he's of course known as a composer, he was also a pianist and was actually a professor of piano. And so he knew the piano repertoire, and I find it very interesting that this maverick composer, this rugged individualist, an uncompromising composer, and certainly a composer who had carved out his own sound, that he also could draw inspiration from the past, and that some of these piano works are not as far removed from works from the standard repertoire as you might think. Let's have a listen to another piece from this cycle called Dream Images and see if you can hear what I mean.
Did you catch it? All of a sudden, there's this melody in that piece, Dream Images, that emerges. He launches into a, a direct quote from Chopin's Fantasy Impromptu that has also been recorded as I'm Always Chasing Rainbows, and you hear it in a million different places. And again, I just am um, blown away <laughs> that, that uh, such an individualistic composer like Crum pays homage to the piano masters of the past. Well, as we've heard, composers have been incredibly imaginative in their approach to writing music for this wonderful instrument, the piano. And the last thing I want to examine is how composers have used sounds in the everyday world or from nature to create an extended palette of timbres and to incorporate them within a piano piece using computers or tape playback. When it comes to integrating these extended sound ideas into a composition, one of my personal favorites is Chicago composer Kyung Mi Choi. We're going to listen to a piano piece of hers, the title of which is almost like a dedication. It's called Two Unformed. In this piece, we're going to hear the sounds of water. We're going to hear the sounds of wind. We're going to hear all kinds of sounds you find in the natural world that have nothing to do with the piano. And yet I feel that Choi has integrated them very well into the piece. See what you think. Two Unformed by Kyung Mi Choi.
What a wonderful sound world she creates there. We've just listened to a piece by Chicago composer Kyung Mi Choi called Two, Unformed, for piano with pre-recorded tape accompaniment. I hope you've enjoyed our trip through this incredible landscape as we've listened to so many pieces for the piano by modern composers who are experimenting in so many different ways. You can send us an email at info at relevanttones.com. And I hope you'll join us next Saturday at 5 o'clock as we continue our weekly exploration of the exciting sound world of modern composers. Relevant Tones has been co-produced by Jesse McCorders at WFMT in Chicago and me, Seth Bostead, Executive Director of Access Contemporary Music. Today's program is made possible with support from Chicago-based Access Contemporary Music online at acmusic.org. Steve Robinson is the Executive Producer. Again, I'm Seth Bostead, and thanks very much for listening.